I'm Anthony Walsh and this is the Roadman Cycling Podcast, the show where we empower you with the tools to optimize your health, your happiness and your longevity. Joining us today is Dr. Michael Gervais, a high-performance psychologist whose expertise has transformed the game of the world's top athletes, Olympic gold medalists, world record holders and Super Bowl champions. His profound insights into the human mind have not only elevated some of the world's top athletes and performers, but they've reshaped the narrative of what it truly means to excel. Whether it's the intense focus of an NFL player during a Super Bowl or steadying the nerves of an athlete heading into an Olympic final, Gervais has been the person they call. He's the silent force behind these elite athletes, fine-tuning their mental prowess. Today, we embark on a journey into the heart of mindset mastery, uncovering the tools and techniques that propel the very best in sport to achieve greatness. This is a little taste of what awaits you today. And he pauses and he says, the one thing that I can't give him, the one thing I had as a kid, I can't give him, and that was nothing. Chip on the and shoulder. And so this idea, yeah, that's right. What I've found is that just taking time to revisit the love of what you're trying to sort out in your life, just spending time, even right now for us and or your community, is like, what do I love unlocking? What is the feeling that I'm looking to have more often? So the first seat of this whole thing, the first pillar is awareness. And if you're not investing, this is a big statement I'm gonna make, but if you're not doing something in your life to invest in awareness training, you're not really in the game. Michael, welcome to the Roadman Podcast. Anthony, it's great to be here. I want to start off. Many of our listeners struggle with motivating themselves consistently. They're bombarded with information, this podcast and others, and they know how to recapture their health. They know how to recapture their happiness. They know the pathway they should be taking, but they can't seem to get out of their own way to take that path. Why do we see this disconnect? Why is it so common? I love the question. And it's not an easy one to just say, oh, here, let me tell you the one thing or the seven steps. I, I don't think when it comes to high performance, um, there's no hacks, there's no tricks, there's no tips, you know, there's no shortcuts. So this grounded question about motivation, I think is right on the money. So maybe what we can do is we can just pull back a little bit, make sure we're talking about the same thing. And so motivation is this basic drive to go do something. And when you study that concept from a evolutionary perspective, there's no such thing as a motivation, like not being driven to something because survival is such a strong driver for us. Our brain and our body is optimized to solve for something. And for the most part, it's survival. So if we are talking in this conversation about optimization, we're talking about high performance, not necessarily survival, then it's a bit of a different conversation. So I just want to ground it to make sure that we're talking about the same thing, which is the conversation of high performance. Is that right? Yes, yeah, the conversation of high performance. Yeah. So when it comes to motivation, um, and we think about internal versus external motivation, we can also think about internal versus external rewards. And so let me just kind of frame it one more time, and then I'll drive into what I think is an important unlock for folks. So, because depending on the type of motivation depends on the best tool to be able to unlock that drive. There's internal, external, and exactly what it sounds like, internally driven people, they don't need alarm bells, they don't need people tapping their shoulder, they don't need prodding, they don't need people checking up on them. 
they are driven from this internal um, mechanism to go explore, to go figure something out. And then if you're internally driven, it, you're, you're going to have an easier time staying the course because it's coming from within, meaning that you love figuring shit out, period. The other is external. So you're chasing something, a reward, uh, some sort of validation, something from the outside of you that fuels the required drive to keep going. So obviously you can see from the setup, this is why psychologists have been so attracted to at least illuminating the idea of internal motivation as opposed to the external rewards that people often find valuable. Now, it's not that simple though. What I've found by working with the best in the world over the last 20 some years is that they have both internal drive that's high and external drive that's high. So it's not like, oh, just flip it around and be some sort of Zen monk, you know, only appreciating the internal motivations and drives. It's not that simple. So I think having high on both is what the big unlock is. So to do that, we often have to go back down to base level, which is like, what do you love sorting out and figuring out? And it's not like riding faster or jumping higher. It's like, what is it inside of that that I love the feeling of? And what I found with most high performers is that they love the unlock. They love sorting out, like I'm just about able to break open this new thing, this new idea, this new gear, and I just, I'm stuck in a plateau. And when they're stuck in the plateau is where they get caught up in the low motivation to be able to stay the course. So you got to come back to home base just for a second. Like, what is the thing I love unlocking? So what decides if somebody's in the external or internal motivation camp if they're intrinsically or extrinsically motivated is that in an eight quality that's different in each of us depending on you know genetics upbringing or is it a way to switch on one versus the other i think so environment and genetics and socialization all play a factor and culture is a big factor included in all of that and there's regional you know cultures and there's also local cultures so my experience has been that depending on the narrative of the street and the community that you grew up on plays a big part about what you're driven toward. And if you play a couple of scenarios out, if you're born with a silver spoon in your mouth, it's kind of a different narrative than if you were born, you know, with very little. And I'll tell you a quick story. It was on the Finding Mastery podcast and I had a world's best on and I said, and I'd known him for a long time and he played in the National Basketball Association, the NBA. I said, hey man, how are your kids? And he said, um, you know, they're good. They're really good. And he's all of 6'5", 215 pounds, elite athlete in every sense of the world, won a national championship twice. And um, he paused and he said, I give them the best coaches. They've got the best shoes. They're in the best camps. Like they're doing good, Mike. And he pauses and he says, but the one thing that I can't give them, the one thing I had as a kid, I can't give them. And that was nothing. Chip on the and shoulder. And so this idea, yeah, that's right. And so, so it's closely related to motivation, but not squarely that conversation. So the closely part is like when your narrative from your social community or your environment is like, you got to go prove yourself. You got to go get yours. No one's going to give it to you. And so, and then you see your parents or somebody struggling and you see on TV or social media now with people that have so much that it, it contorts the internal love to unlock for the external validation, the external 
desire to have the thing. Now, what happens if you spend 20 plus years working at something and you're born with some genetic talents and you layer on top of it high skill and you're chasing the external thing and you get the external thing, it's a whole different conversation. And I don't know if your community is in that conversation or there's something else happening for, um, for them. For the first time in years, I have really big targets that I'm super passionate about this summer. And although the warmer months are approaching, I don't want to slip into that trap I see so many riders falling into, just riding around with no focus and no aim with their friends, simply because the good weather is starting to arrive. I'm still using my Watt bike almost daily to keep me sharp and on point with specific sessions all the way into my target events, Rift, Migration Gravel, and Leadville later this summer. That's why I'm really happy to be partnering with Wattbike. The Wattbike, Adam, it's sitting next to the desk in the recording studio, and if I have an error between interviews, I jump on. It's removing all those friction points for me. No more 10-minute setup, unfolding legs, banging my knees off stuff, connection issues. It just works every single time. The Adam is perfect for riding Zwift because it has those crisp gear changes. Boom, boom. 1% power accuracy and max gradient capability of 25%. If only my legs had a max gradient capability of 25%. Even if I'm riding those steepest climbs on Watopia, it's absolutely fine. I'm actually riding that custom gearing setup. So if I'm riding a particularly hilly route, I'll select a more climbing suitable gear ratio. It's the business. If you're looking for an indoor trainer, if you're looking to stay sharp this summer and not lose that hard-earned fitness over the winter, I couldn't recommend the Wattbike setup any higher. It's the last indoor trainer you're ever going to need. Head on over to whatbike.com now and check out their full range. When I think about the external thing, I chat with high performers in the podcast or, you know, some of the best athletes in the world all the time. And that thing is quite tangible for them. It's a, like you say, it's a championship. It's a Tour de France title. It's an Olympic gold medal. When we peel it back to our everyday Joes and Janes, I call them, someone that's balancing conflicting demands on their time, work, family, maybe a side hustle, and they're still trying to prioritize health, getting that thing, that's a little bit more of an abstract concept because that thing is, yeah. it's health. And health, it's, or maybe it's happiness, or maybe it's living a little bit longer. But to kind of coin Peter Atiyah's phrase, it's more health span and lifespan. It's living longer, but having good quality to those years as well, rather than an actual tangible destination that the elite athletes would have. Yeah. And so the elite athletes, just to round that, that part of the conversation, is that they tend to have high on both external and internal. The ones that are just externally driven and low on internal, they tend not to be able to stay the course. It, it, it becomes problematic if they don't get the thing or if they do get the thing. And what I've found is that just taking time to revisit the love of what you're trying to sort out in your life, just spending time, even right now for us and or your community, is like, what do I love unlocking? What is the feeling that I'm looking to have more often? What is the compelling internal experience that keeps me going? And you can also have all of the external things but you're just not in control if you actually get those external things. But you are always in control of the internal state. And I spent the last two years adjacent to your question researching what is the number one constrictor of the potential of people? What gets in the way 
more than just about anything else. And I'd love to talk to you about that as well. It's just adjacent though to motivation. Yeah, let's let's put a pin in that one and come back. And I, I have a guess as to what I think it might be. We'll, we'll come back to that one in a second. If somebody is in that situation I've described and they, they understand the beneficial habits that are going to take them to this uh, imagined destination, this place where they're going to be happy and they're going to be healthy, what are the strategies to kickstart that? Like, What's the catalyst for motion to get them out of that rut that they're in at the moment? Well, I, I want to make sure I hear you correctly because I don't think I agree with the premise, which is that they're going to work hard and one day they're going to have happiness. Is that is that the framing? Well, I suppose they're envisaging themselves in a place right now where I'm busy, I don't have time for my health pursuits, I'm making suboptimum choices around diet and sleep. And so when I say happiness, it's maybe a, it's a future state when they have all the things then that they aren't currently doing now. Yeah, I think... Therein lies some of the fallacy, is that later it will be better if I can just sacrifice more now. And when it comes to health, we used to believe, it was about 10 or 15 years ago, we used to believe that true high performance began where health ended. And that was a mistake. We didn't know better. We didn't know how to balance the right amount of rhythms for health versus the deep, intense, high strain work for high performance. And we thought that you couldn't have both. But now the research and science is holding up in a more interesting way to say, no, there's, there's a better way. And so this idea that I'm going to grind now and I'll be happy later or healthy later, it just actually doesn't work that way. And so it, there's no substitute for grinding. There's no substitute for deep, hard, disciplined, highly intensely nauseous work to understand what you're capable of. Like that's just part of it. But what we need is equal units of recovery on a daily basis. And those equal units of recovery, this is a bit esoteric. Like for each unit of stress, you need an equal unit of recovery. And that is the right way to go after your day. If you want to play the game of potential, if you want to play the game of high performance, you need to play the right game of recovering properly to stay the course. Because high performance and potential expression takes time and time under tension most notably. So our days are designed with the, um, the teams I work with or the individuals or the organizations is to um, understand the units of sh stress, see if there's more to strain, because what ends up happening is when we're fatigued and tired because we haven't done the recovery bit quite right, we tend to hold back just a little bit. So we want to make sure that we're at the upper limit as long as we possibly can in the work that we're doing. And that work, depending on the nature of the work, is sometimes, you know, 10 minutes to, you know, 45 minutes, somewhere in that range. But we know that 15 minutes is a really interesting time bound for high strain and 45 minutes is really interesting for high cognitive strain. And so, so what I'm saying is that we want to understand high strain, make sure we're doing that and then equal units of recovery and recovery is not complicated. Grandma and grandpa kind of got it right. Eat food that comes from the earth, sleep about eight hours, you know, make sure you're laughing throughout the day and you've got some social connections and people you can pour into love and making sure that you're uh, hydrating on a regular basis. Like those are kind of the big rocks of recovery. I work my ass off to get those in because I want to, I want to have that buoyancy in life. I want to have that zest, you know, when I wake up in the morning and that fire to go after the thing that I'm trying to solve. And I want that for my, the folks that are trusting me to help them as well. 
you mentioned there's something that stops people reaching their potential. I wonder, and I know for me in the past, it has been myself. It's been that inner voice, my inner dialogue that stood in the way of realizing my true potential. That's it. And so if we double click on that, the reason that inner dialogue is so critical or negative or short-sighted or self-doubting, the reason we have those conversations with ourselves is because of this latent, very kind of uh, invisible limit. And that invisible limit is based on survival. So our brains are optimized to scan the world and find all the things that are danger to keep us alive. And we had to scan the world to find, like, is that rustling in the bush? Is that a bunny or is that a saber tooth? And we bias towards saber tooth because if you bias too much towards the bunny, like game over, right? So we're biased to uh, the alarm bells inside, the fight, flight, freeze, submit mechanism. We don't talk about submit enough, but that fight, flight, freeze mechanism turns on. But in modern times, we've got this ancient kick-ass brain, but it's not optimized to modern day threats. So what's the number one threat that we have now in modern times? It's not the saber tooth anymore. It's not the dangerous dark alley that, you know, that is dangerous, but it's like, it's not that dangerous for most folks in most communities. It's the fear of people's opinions. It's the scanning the world, the, your environment and, and thinking like it's this exhaustive attempt to try to interpret what they're thinking, because if you are rejected, then and you are kicked out of the tribe long ago, hundreds and thousands of years ago, long ago, that meant certain death. And so it's not the actual negative opinion that's so problematic. It's the fear of that opinion. And it's this, again, this exhaustive attempt to preempt a negative opinion by interpreting clues in our environment to see if we're okay. So what are the strategies for changing that inner dialogue? Well, first it's recognizing that we we often find ourselves conforming or contorting or like shape-shifting our true self to be approved by others. And so that's one level to, to pay attention to. The second is when you are aware of this compromised way of contorting yourself or conforming for social approval in very subtle ways. That's part one. Part two is to become more aware of the way that you, excuse the locker room language here, the way that you talk shit to yourself, the way that you coach yourself in an absolute like amateur way is you need to become aware of that as well. So the first seat of this whole thing, the first pillar is awareness. And if you're not investing, this is a big statement I'm going to make, but if you're not doing something in your life to invest in awareness training, you're not really in the game. You're a grinder. You're getting after it, but you're not really in the game of the, the, the potential that you have dormant lying within you. And so you end up, let's go back to recovery. If you're not aware of how your inner self is working, you end up burning a lot of internal resources. A, to make sure that you are doing what you can to be accepted and not rejected, and B, to be aware of that critical, negative, debilitating narrative. Awareness is required for both of those. And so kind of the whole thing starts with awareness training, and then you start to get more sophisticated on how, I'll, I'll tie this thing full circle, the things that you love 
and the feeling that you're trying to, I'm sorry, let me be more precise. It's not the things you love. That is not what motivation's about. It's about having the feeling, the internal experience where you feel most alive. And it's not having an external event dictate or cause that internal feeling. True mastery is being able to have that feeling wherever you go, or I should say those feelings wherever you go. So it's awareness first, and then it's knowing kind of the way you want to live your life from the inside out, and then it's practicing ways of thinking that way and ways of being authentic to your actual values rather than being liked by other people. I had a chance to chat with the Factor founder, Rob Jatelis, on the podcast. It's worth going back to check out that episode. I was super impressed with him personally. Factor are really pushing the boundaries of what's possible with aerodynamics in bike design at the moment. But they're doing it with a social conscience, and that's what's so impressive for me. They're mindful of that environmental impact, paying employees a living wage, and resisting the urge to relocate production, like so many competitors, to lower-cost labour markets. I'm super proud to be riding Factor Bikes for the upcoming season. If you're considering buying a bike for yourself, put me a DM over on Instagram or over on Twitter, and I'm going to give you a personal introduction to the guys at Factor and make sure you get the very best possible experience. Whenever I've had a goal in my crosshairs, and I'll specify on this, this is an external goal, something that's objectively measurable to win a bike race to podium in a national championships whenever i've had this goal and i said about you know in cycling circles we'll do we'll reverse engineer the demands of the goal and we'll build out a periodized training plan around that but i found that my motivation ebbs and flows within that training cycle could be you know a six-month training cycle We'll have natural recovery rhythms built into that based on performance and data metrics. But my motivation won't naturally ebb and flow in harmony with my physical training load. Like I could be expected to complete quite a difficult, arduous training week, but I'm on a very low ebb on motivation. How can we deal with those natural ebbs and flows in motivation? So I want to make sure I understand this correctly. You're saying when you're in a heavy training cycle, there's ebbs and flows in motivation. Yeah, training cycle, dietary goal, even a, a work target that I have. Yeah, so we're talking about like increase. So that happens to everybody. You know, getting knocked off the perch or knocked off the whatever. Like that does happen. So I think what we're talking about is increasing the speed of getting back after it. Yeah, I think it's two things. It's increasing the speed. It's making, I suppose, to use the wave analogy, it's to make higher lows. So the low isn't as, if I think about some of the clients I'm working with, so one in particular, he'll have a training week where he'll go basically to zero training hours. And he'll say, work's too busy, family's too busy, I got zero training hours in. I'm trying to say, okay, instead of zero, can we make that four? You know, Can we make that five hours? Yeah, I think you you probably know the answer here, which is habits. And so this this ties back into recovery. And so it's both habits and recovery. If you are tilling the soil and you're creating an, an environment where, you know, it's fertile for growth, things happen. You know, and it's easier for things to grow. That's what recovery is. The basic practice of recovery is having fertile soil so that when you apply sun and stress and pressure or wind or rain or whatever to the seed, it grows. And it's the same thing in sport. So 
mechanically, it's making sure recovery is in place. And there's two ways to think about recovery. One is a mistake and one is like more advantageous. The mistake is I'll recover later. I'll take the two-week vacation. I'll take the month vacation. I'll recover better after I get through this training cycle. It doesn't work. It's not how we're designed. So the, the more optimal way to do it is what we refer to as thin slicing of recovery. So being great every day with thin slices. It's like you could sit on a, a pillow and do meditation for 20 minutes. Good science. It's been around 2,600 years. I've been practicing for 25 years myself. However, 100 long exhales spread out throughout the day in chunks of twos and threes is really important. It's different than meditation, but it's a really important thin slice of recovery. So the first- That's I just, really interesting. I like that. Just to jump in there, sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, no that's problem. really interesting because that's something I'm really passionate about. And you see this all the time in modern culture. When someone does come off the wagon, you hear this mantra, oh, well, I may as well be hung for a sheep as a lamb. So this could be someone who's trying to give up drink and then they have one glass of wine. And their rationale is, well, if I have one glass of wine, sure, I may as well have a whole bottle. But what you're really advocating here and quite elegantly is instead of all or nothing, maybe just do all or something. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, basically. And there's different benefits of, of both, right? The basic thing I'm trying to just put a stake in the ground is to say, make sure your recovery is, is on point. Okay. And then that allows that four hour, like I want to get after it for four hours um, as a minimum threshold, but I, in, instead I'm choosing zero hours to your analogy is when the fertile is, is ripe and like you're, you're taking care of yourself four is more doable. If you're exhausted and the soil is hardened and you haven't been watering it properly, zero might be the best call actually because you haven't been taking care of yourself and that's where things break and you know that's where burnout happens and if it is one more level or layer to this complicated conversation is maybe you're not prioritizing what you want in the long term over what you need in the short term and so prioritization is really important as well one of the things that best in the world do is that they tend to have a pretty singular focus and that singular focus is very clear. Those goals are very clear. Like I'm going after X. And again, that can be internal and or external. And, and not a whole lot of other stuff competes with it. And sometimes, un unfortunately, including family, including social life, including other things. So maybe for the working person, we need to readjust the kind of the ambition for the long term. You know, like, are we going for health or are we going for records? And setting that goal is, it's an interesting conversation in itself because, you know, the professional athletes, it's one thing. The goals, you know, in a lot of ways, they pick themselves. They're the big shiny objects that are within reach, but they're more difficult for a lot of us. And for me personally, right. I found that in cycle anyway, we take a winter break. So we'll race all the way up through the summer and you'll normally take like two, three weeks total off the bike. So you'll lock it away until the point where you're just dying to get out cycling again. And when I'm getting back into it, when I'm setting goals, I found for a long time, I set these lofty goals. Okay, I'm going to get back into it this week, back to three times a week in the gym, back to riding the bike 20 hours. And the lofty goal didn't work for me. It was nice to have a North Star goal. Yes, I want a podium in a national championship. So I want a podium in this race. To set it and then put it away. But then practically to make much smaller goals, 
because when the threshold for action was so big, it was just like, oh, that's so big, it's so scary, and it's so far away, I'm just going to do nothing. But when the goal was absolutely minuscule, like my goal today is to find my shoes for tomorrow, the threshold for taking action is so easy that I almost can't fail on that. What's the theory behind setting big goals or setting small goals, or how should we balance those two? So I'm much more, I love what you're doing because what the small goals that you're talking about are hab- is habit formation, you know, is setting something that eventually becomes a habit in many respects. And when you, when you achieve those small, seemingly small goals, you'd want to pair that with being really excited about achieving it. So you want to have your back. You want to kind of celebrate like a wild person, like nobody else would understand. <laughs> but what that does For is- For finding my shoes. <laughs> yeah, right. But what that does is it, it pairs like this, this uh, foot in the door this momentum, it pairs that momentum towards the next thing with uh, enjoyment and fun and excitement and dopamine in particular. So like you want to, you want to try to be clever with your neuro, your neurochemistry, your psychology and your behaviors. If you get all three of those working in favor, great. So the small little goals there is interesting because they start to turn into habits when, because uh, our body wants to do stuff that, um, is associated with pleasure and some sort of reward. So you can artificially create that reward by the celebration I'm talking about. I'm much more interested in goals that are 100% under my control. And that the art of knowing how to set a goal that's 100% your responsibility and 100% in your control is a very important part of the art of the science of goal setting. So goals that serve with more potency and power are ones that are 100% under our control. Interesting. So if I am looking to get started now, I'm a listener on this podcast, I finished this podcast, and I want to take one positive action towards achieving this idea of consistent motivation, what would be that first step you would take? First step is to be very clear about the feelings that you want to have more often in your life. Okay, so if it's specific to cycling, what is the feeling I want to associate that activity with? And so I'll tell you why that's so important is because it is psychological and emotional first and psychology and emotion drive behavior. So if you put behavior ahead of psychology and emotion, you end up diluting the potency. So what is the feeling? So now you're, you're shaping the bullseye. And then from that, you line up small behaviors that will help you be more aligned with those feelings. The vocabulary around the feelings hard though, isn't it? Like what is the feeling for someone trying to get in shape? Is it a feeling of freshness? Is it a feeling of freedom, effortless on the bike or the run? Like it, it is a difficult vocabulary for someone that's not used to expressing a goal through a feeling. Yeah, 100%. I, and I think that we are pretty average when it comes to understanding how to work with emotions. And I say that like, I work in some of the most alpha competitive environments in the world and pretty freaking average. And so if, if intellectually, if you say, yeah, no, I am a thinker and a doer and there's no, there's no room for emotions. Like intellectually, it's hard to make that, that logic in that statement. So most people would say, yeah, being human is about having emotions, about having thoughts, and about having behaviors. You know, there's something about those three that's really important. And they're so difficult to deal with. Emotions and feelings actually are separate uh, constructs, but they're so difficult to manage or deal with that we just try to numb them down or put them aside. 
And what I'm suggesting is the greatest driver and motivator is to be able to work well with your emotions. And that starts with first identifying the feelings that you want to have. So to be really concrete, when I, I'm looking for unlocking concepts and ideas that are new to me and fresh, and there's a thrill with that. To try to, I'm dedicating my life to mastery of the psychology of high performance. And so when I can see and hear and feel something that is new, it's exhilarating. It's wonderful. And so I want to be clear that that's why I'm grinding. It's not for money. It's not for, I, I need money. I'm not independently wealthy. It's not for attention. While that can feel nice when you're recognized for something that seems clever or smart or important or meaningful, but it's like, I need to be responsible for my life and my life, the way I want to feel when something unlocks with another person, that that's the feeling that I'm looking for, which um, for each person, I think it's important to recognize that. And then I'll anchor this one more th- one more time with you, Anthony. This comes from the work of uh, Dr. Newberg. And it's called the resonance model. And so the idea is you start with this dream about how you want to live your life, the feelings that come with it. You know, you start with the dream. And then you figure out, like, kind of, you go to, that's, say that's 12 o'clock on a clock. And then you move to three o'clock. And it's like, okay, how am I going to prepare and train? And what are the capabilities I need to be able to develop? Okay, so that's a preparation phase. Then you swing down to six o'clock and you're going to have some success. You're going to have some obstacles. You're going to have some setbacks, SOS, setbacks, obstacles, and successes. And what most people do is they go, right, I need to prepare. Good, I'm glad I had this setback or obstacle or success. Now what do I do? Let me go prepare differently. And they swing back up to three o'clock. And then they train again and they swing back down to six o'clock. They need reach another success or obstacle or setback. And they just find themselves in that grind between three and six o'clock. And that is exhausting. It's a plan for staleness and burnout and fatigue. It's the dull part of life, right? And so what we found, what Dr. Newberg found is that the extraordinaries, when they hit a setback, obstacle, or excess, they revisit the dream. Swing over to nine o'clock now. They revisit the dream. And that's all I'm suggesting in this conversation is go back and revisit like what is the feeling that you want to have more often in your life and then design your life for that. Think that way, have conversations with yourself that support that, be in relationships with other people, set up your recovery and training program to have those types of feelings more often. And I'm not suggesting by any means to have one feeling, joy or happiness or fun. I want the fucking full range. I want to understand the depth and the range of the human experience. And that squarely sits in emotional frameworks, not physical. <laughs> like it's, it's just not, and it's not psychological alone. It squarely sits in the emotional part of being human. And if you go to any of the, the great wisdoms, they will, they will point to the same thing. And so does modern science in a lot of ways. I think that's a lovely place to wrap up. Michael, I love that finishing clock analogy. Dr. Michael Gervais, thank you for joining me on the Roman Podcast. Appreciate you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Have you ever wondered how good you could actually be? Each of us has a unique set of circumstances with work, family and social obligations, but we also want to fulfill our potential in cycling. Okay, okay, maybe you won't ever win the Tour de France, but for most of us, this is what cycling is about. 
So let us build you the perfect training plan around your lifestyle that's totally unique to you and will help you finally realize your cycling dreams. So whether you're just getting started on the bike or if you're a more seasoned cyclist, we have a suitable coach for you. So why not schedule a call with us and we can have a chat about how we can help you go further than you ever dreamed of in your cycling and fitness goals. Go to roadmancycling.com forward slash contact or pop me an email directly to sarah at roadmancycling.com.